November 29th, 1947, the United Nations adopted what was called the Partition Plan for Palestine. This resolution recommended the creation of independent Arab and Jewish states, which had never existed side by side. Uh, And once the uh, British mandate ended and the last British troops pulled out of Palestine in May of 1948, David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of Israel, officially declared the establishment of the nation of Israel. Evangelical Christians rejoiced. They viewed that, uh, that specific event as the culmination of the return of God's people to the promised land, as God had prophesied so long ago. With that fulfillment of prophecy, expectation was extremely high among God's people that the rest of Bible prophecy was soon going to follow, and we would be seeing the return of Christ and the establishment of his kingdom on this earth. The intervening 75 years, though, have shown that The Jewish people today are as much intent on achieving their own righteousness as they ever have been and are far from faith in God. Has something gone wrong? The widespread unbelief of the Jews seems to question the reliability of God's word. God has promised that Abraham's descendants, the the people of Israel, would in fact enjoy his blessings forever. So what is going on here? Well, that should give all of us cause for concern. God made promises to them. They don't seem to be working out. He's made promises to us, uh, ranging everywhere from the uh, daily grace that sustains us to the promise of an eternal home in heaven. Well, if he has somehow reneged on his promises to his Old Testament people, how can we be very confident in what he has said, for us. Well, that's the dilemma that the Apostle Paul is so keenly aware of, and and really it is chapters 9, 10, and 11 in which he's been addressing this, but he gets the clearest in, uh, in, in giving us the insight that we need and correcting misconceptions in chapter 11. So our passage today, verses 1 through 10, uh, uh, these, are actually, these verses are the first part of his answer. It's going to extend through all of chapter 11. And uh, he is asserting here that Israel's failure, Israel has failed, but Israel's failure is not total. 
There are some exceptions. They aren't numerous, but they are, they are significant enough for us to draw some conclusions, to, to discern the truth we need to know from this passage today and to know what we are supposed to do about it. This passage tells us that God faithfully fulfills all his promises. Any conclusion otherwise is a misunderstanding of reality. It's misunderstanding the facts. God faithfully fulfills all of his promises. That means everything he said for his people today, you can trust. You can trust God to keep his word. There are two parts to this assurance of God fulfilling his promises. First one, in verses 1 through 6, God preserves all who accept the gospel without fail. God preserves all who accept the gospel. And so he points out, well, first of all, he, he, he starts by asking a question a question that its very phraseology expects us to understand. The answer here is no. Uh, We could say it this way. Uh, God has not rejected his people, has he? No, of course not. But to make sure we draw that right conclusion, the no, of course not, he adds it in explicitly. He says, by no means. If God had rejected his people, there would be zero believing Jews today. He has not rejected his people, and Paul submits exhibit A, and it's himself. He says, look at me, for instance. I'm Jewish. And he gives his pedigree in Uh, In verse 1, he says, I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. He's he's got a convincing case here. Uh, Paul says, I'm Jewish, and I'm a believer. God has extended his saving grace to me. So on that basis alone, we can reject the idea that God has rejected his people. And Paul knows he's not the only exception. He also knows that in our era, this is not the first time that a vast majority of Jewish people are far from the Lord. So he goes back in Old Testament history, goes back to uh, an event recorded in First uh, Kings chapter 19, uh, besides his own testimony that confirms God's plan is still intact, he says we can go back in Scripture and the testimony of the Scriptures also confirms God's plan. So he says, uh, don't, don't you remember at the end of verse 2, God has not rejected his people. Don't you know what the Scripture says of Elijah? how he appeals to God against Israel. All right, now take note of that. 
Elijah was very discouraged on this occasion. So discouraged that he actually pleads to the Lord against his own people and describes the circumstances from his own perspective. And it's pretty bleak. Here's his his, uh, plea to God. He says, Lord, they have killed your prophets. Keep in mind, this is God's people doing this. They've killed your prophets. Now, that was very personal to Elijah because he's a prophet. They've killed them. God's spokesmen. They have demolished your altars. They are against worshiping the God of heaven. Elijah adds, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. Elijah was very discouraged. As he looked around, he couldn't find any that had a similar devotion to God as he did. He doesn't know anybody, zero friends to support him. And he's not at all confident that he's going to live from day to day. And what would it mean if the very last individual standing who has been walking with God, what would, what would it mean if he also comes to his end at the hand of these wicked people? What would that say about God's plan? Paul continues then in, in verse 4, asking another question, what is God's reply to him? We just heard Elijah's perspective. What's God's perspective on this? What was God's reply recorded in that same chapter? He tells this discouraged prophet, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, 7,000 compared to the probably several million Jewish people living there in that time, 7,000, that's pretty meager. Uh, that's, That's not a rousing display of strength. But let's put it another way. You put 7,000 alongside only one. That's a huge encouragement to Elijah. He thought he was all by himself. Oh, there are 7,000 others. And God specifies here that they have not bowed the knee to Baal. Why specify that particular mark of distinction? Well, it seems to be because that was the key point of pressure going on in Elijah's day. If people were destroying God's altars... And killing his prophets is because they were promoting the worship of Baal instead and were, uh, were encouraging and feeding and paying the salaries of the prophets of Baal instead. So here are individuals that, in spite all the pressure of their current society, Pressure to give in, to blend in with that society. 
and to try to extend their life by not standing out as one of those God worshipers, the old-fashioned ones that aren't keeping up with the times and don't know that Baal is the one we should be worshiping right now. 7,000 of them have said, no, I am not going that way. I am not giving up my confidence in God. God is true. God will preserve. That's really the emphasis of these first four verses, that God is still fulfilling his plan, and he's doing so not just by saving Elijah's soul, and not just by extending his grace to the 7,000 others so that they also have come to know the Lord as Savior, but by preserving their lives in the midst of a hostile generation, in the midst of a world where it looks like all the pressure is going in the other direction, who can stand under such circumstances? the ones that God preserves. God's commitment to his people is unfailing, but his commitment is focused on those who have accepted the gospel. Now, we don't use the term gospel in relation to the Old Testament circumstances so much, but it is the same salvation Those 7,000 were standing, not just because God was putting a hedge about them, but because God had saved their souls. The same salvation. They looked ahead in faith to to the Savior God would provide. We look back to that Savior. It is the gospel, although they didn't know all the details of it as we do. But that God is still fulfilling his plan by saving all who accept that gospel and by preserving their lives to accomplish his purpose. By pointing to this one Old Testament example, and he could have chosen some others, he's showing that what we see today with the vast majority of Jewish people having rejected the gospel. What we're seeing is actually a historical pattern. This has been the way things have happened over and over again. There's no big shock here because God only saves. He will only preserve those who have accepted the gospel. And in that regard, he continues in verses 5 and 6 that he is still providing his grace, even today, including those Jewish people that have chosen to accept Christ as Savior. He's still providing grace. Though the vast majority uh, want nothing to do with the God of heaven, the remnant of those who have trusted Christ today. And praise God, there are still some Jewish people trusting God now. Many of them like to identify themselves as Messianic Jews. 
Jews that have not rejected the Messiah that God promised and now has sent. And so they worship God through that Messiah, through Christ. Verse 5 tells us that the grace that God has given to them and to all his people today, all who have accepted the gospel, that grace guarantees the effectiveness of God's choice. He says in verse 5, So too, at the present time, as God has done in the past, there is a remnant chosen by grace. A remnant that stands out in the crowd, like the Apostle Paul did, like Elijah and the 7,000. And Paul, of course, of course, was not by himself either. Paul knew of other Jewish believers in his own day. In fact, by the time we get to the end of the book of Romans, he's giving greetings to a variety of people, and there are six of them that are identified as Paul's kinsmen. He means they're Jewish believers too. Paul wasn't standing alone. God's grace guarantees that if God chose somebody, if God chooses someone today, his grace is going to sustain them to the completion of God's plan. He will enable believers then to persevere despite the pressure to give up, despite the pressure in our world to fit in, to give in, to blend in. God's grace can make sure that you don't have to do that. Verse 6, having mentioned grace, he, uh, he makes sure that we haven't forgotten from when he said it earlier in the book of Romans that grace at the same time eliminates the contribution of our work. See, a a Jewish believer today might be tempted to think, well, look at all of those other Jews, and they're not saved, and I am saved as well as a few others that I know. Must be because we were a little better. Maybe we were a little easier to redeem than those others. Paul says, no, if it is by grace, It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. God's choice by grace is entirely free, influenced by nothing inherent in the heart of any of his people, influenced only by his own decision. That is our salvation by grace. It's the only salvation in which we can be confident. Because if we contributed anything to our salvation, if we gained it on that basis, then we could lose it on that basis as well. If it is only granted on the basis of God's choice, and that choice doesn't change, now we can have eternal security.
a loving mother once voiced a request, an important request. Please pray, she said with an earnestness. Please pray for my child to come to Christ. Now that child was growing up in a Christian home. She said, we long to see that spiritual victory in our family. The child was early elementary age, certainly old enough to understand and accept the gospel, but generally not quite old enough that for most people it would generate very much concern. We can get used to the fact that uh, we often see uh, a, a pretty steady stream of, of our own children and our families coming to the Lord, following him in baptism, and we rejoice in that. But we could come to look at that as, as almost automatic. Grow up in a Christian home, you get saved. But that mother's prayer request, I thought, showed some biblical insight. It's not automatic. It's not natural. Every instance of conversion, whether it's a Jewish person or one of us Gentiles, every instance of conversion is a miracle of God's grace that we can attribute to nothing other than his grace. And with that grace, Paul assures us in these six verses, with that grace comes the assurance of God's sustaining help through all the challenges that follow that decision to accept Christ as Savior. His grace is not only enough to save your soul, it is enough to sustain you in his service despite whatever your life must face. This passage, then, is a clear call to decide to trust God's promises. Trust God no matter how difficult your circumstances. Trust God, say, when the enemy seems to be in control of the government, the media, when God, God's enemies seem to be even in control of many churches and uh, religions across the country and around the world, you've got God's grace. You've got the promises of God that he always fulfills. Remember those promises. Trust those promises when you are facing difficult circumstances. Well, we have, Paul has just argued that God chooses to save every Jew and every Gentile. These same principles apply to us who chooses to accept Christ as Savior. What about the rest? Is God just hands off 
on an individual that has rejected the gospel? Well, there's another side to this that we need to understand. Verses 7 through 10, no, God does do something with those who reject the gospel. He resists them. He resists all who reject the gospel. There's some hard things for us to accept here, but let's, let's jump into this. In verse 7, he hardens their heart. Now, we've seen that before. That goes back to uh, some things Paul said back in chapter 9. Uh, he hardens their heart. Verse 7 says it this way. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Yes, they did. Yes, they are failing to it. What were they seeking? Well, Paul's already told us that. You can go back to chapter 9, verse 31. They were seeking uh, a righteousness by keeping the law. Chapter 10, in verse 3, he says, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness by personal effort, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They were seeking their own, and there is none of that to be found for anybody. So they've come up empty on righteousness. And they have refused the righteousness that God offers in the gospel. They failed then to obtain what they were seeking. The elect obtained it, those that he referred to back in verse 5. The elect are those that God chose by his grace. Those that accept the gospel. But the rest were hardened were hardened. He doesn't say who does the hardening here, but I think we can safely take this one as one of those divine passives. This is God. God does this. And Paul has already established the right that God has to make a choice to accept some and to give them his grace to trust Christ as Savior and to withhold that grace from others. Well, if they don't get that grace, they're not going to trust Christ. Nobody can do that on their own. So we know what that means for them, and God chose that. That was chapter 9. Chapter 10 that we just finished, Paul was explaining the other side of that, that those same individuals make their own choice. And that personal choice of people always matches exactly God's choice. But now in chapter 11, that's not his focus. He's not going back to the truth of chapter 9. He is now referring to individuals who have themselves rejected the gospel, and God responds to them in some way. How does he respond? He responds by resisting. His hardening here is a preemptive hardening. In this case, the hardening is how he responds to an individual who has already hardened his heart. It's not just God saying, all right, hands off. It's God actually 
increasing that hardening so that they miss the righteousness they want in verse 7 and they get the stubbornness that they chose. The very stubbornness, oh, I'm not going to give in. I'm not going to trust Christ. I'm not going to believe God. And God says, okay, you pick that path. I'm going to let you follow that path. I'm going to let you find out what it feels like. You'll feel, instead of my grace that enables, you'll feel my resistance to your efforts. They reap the very stubbornness that they chose. And this is a righteous act of God. It is legitimate for God to let people experience what they chose. And he can quote from the Old Testament. This is from Isaiah chapter 29. He says, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. All right, you don't want to know the truth? It's now going to become harder for you to ever believe it. That is God's righteous judgment. We saw that all the way back in chapter 1. Somebody makes the choice to, to live in sin, and God gives them over to that sin. Let's them find out what that's really like. That's the hardening of the heart in verses 7 and 8. Verses 9 and 10, he shifts to David's testimony. David, of course, felt the brunt of God's enemies uh, so often during his life. And in Psalm 69, Paul here quotes two verses from that psalm in which David is asking God to do some difficult things for his enemies. Uh, as if to say, God, thwart their efforts. Uh, turn their hearts uh, away from me and, 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 and away from God's grace. Verses 9 and 10 further describe then that God can trouble the path. He can trouble the life of an individual who has rejected God's grace. As David says in verse 9, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution. That's kind of odd imagery for us. Let their table become these negative things. About the best we can do with that is a table where an individual expects, expects to get his dinner, his nourishment, his strength, and instead what he finds is a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and retribution. Again, the result of choosing the wrong path. He says, let their eyes be darkened that they cannot see. Let them find out what it is like to live in spiritual blindness and bend their backs forever. Whoa, Paul going a little, um, excuse me, uh, David going a little overboard here? Bend their backs, cause them to stoop over under the burden of trying to live life on this earth apart 
from the God of heaven. But I think there's another element here that helps us to understand what David is saying and how God would respond to such a request on the part of David. Just as God resisting the efforts, thwarting the efforts of someone who's rejected the gospel, because that's exactly what they have chosen. You could also look at this as an act of God's mercy. For God to let them find out what it's like to live without him now. By his mercy, they might come to change their mind. They might decide, this is, this is terrible. This is futile. I can't live like this any longer. And the result of God's convicting grace is that individual can turn to Christ. Now, well, how can they do that if they're experiencing this spiritual blindness? You see, none of this makes it impossible. But it does underscore that the best opportunity that you will have, if you have currently rejected the gospel, the best opportunity you will ever have is right now. It may well become more difficult as you reap what the rejection that you have chosen. The impassioned, inherent plea here is choose Christ now. Don't presume on the future. Trust him now. As long as an individual is alive, somebody that you know, perhaps somebody you love, has rejected the gospel. But as long as they're still alive, God's grace is available. They can still change their mind. They can still come to Christ. Two weeks ago, while I was with the uh, Taklobes in uh, Manila, they had invited a group of international students from the Bible College where uh, where Atan teaches, and it's a, it's a weekly meeting. It's about 7 o'clock on Sunday evening, and so these students walked over from their school where, where they have a dormitory and uh, gathered in. They were from a, a few different countries. Not, they're international students, meaning they're not from the Philippines. There were some from Myanmar, uh, some from uh, China, I think. And part of that uh, time together, we just sat in a circle in their living room, and they each went around and shared their personal testimony of salvation. There were two of those students, though, that I didn't know. I, I didn't have any other contact with them other than that evening. Uh, we, we did share a meal together, and then I was hearing their testimonies, and then I got to uh, open God's word with them. But two of those students said something very peculiar. They had grown up in Christian homes, but as they're sharing their testimony, they said, well, we believe in, I believe in Jesus. They did this individually. But both of them said separately, but I don't remember ever getting saved. I know I'm saved, but I don't ever remember doing it. 
I was clear it was not a matter of not knowing when. What They weren't saying, I don't know the date, but I remember the event. They didn't remember an event. They don't remember ever turning to God, asking his forgiveness, and trusting Christ as Savior. Uh, how odd. And uh, that, I didn't have any opportunity to follow up with them, but in some... Uh, and a private time uh, a few days later, while I was uh, just with a ton, I brought this up to him, and I said, I would recommend you do some follow-up with those two students. I don't know that it's possible to be saved and not know that you actually made a choice. There has to be an event. There has to be a moment when you trust Christ, accept the gospel. And he, he agreed. He had been uh, equally concerned by that absence of such a testimony and said, yes, I, I do plan to follow up with them. You see, the crucial difference between the first half of this passage and the second half is between those who accept, who make a choice, accept the gospel and those who don't. And those who don't would include those who never have. Look at the difference then between the promise of God's saving grace and his preservation to God's opposition, God's resistance. The hinge there is personal choice. So the call here is, perhaps you have stubbornly rejected the gospel or just neglected to ever accept it, but you're tired of living with God against you. You can trust Christ today. You can believe his word, turn to Christ and you now begun, begin to share in all the promises of God he's given to his people. I would urge you, make that choice if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior. So all God's promises are true. All his promises. And we can close then individually by asking for God's grace to trust him, to trust all he has said. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we thank you today for this full assurance that everything in your word is true. Everything you have promised to do for your people, you will. Father, based on that assurance, this coming week when we face circumstances that seem to point in the other direction, we feel alone, we feel abandoned, we feel helpless. Father, in those moments, would you help us trust your word? We have no other foundation. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.
Let's stand together. In just a moment, we'll sing a stanza of our closing song, but first we'll listen to a stanza with our heads bowed. You reflect on your relationship to Christ, your salvation, God's grace extended to you. And if you're not sure you're part of that, you have questions about that, just urge that you would just step out, make your way to the back, over to one of our offices, and we'll have someone there able to show you how you can know Christ is your Savior.